started. First, a few announcements. A couple of important things to remind you about. First, what happens next Sunday? Time change. I heard someone say time change. That's right. We spring forward next Sunday. So don't forget to set your clocks so that you don't miss out on the service and show up at the wrong time. So spring forward next Sunday. Also next week, make a special point of being here because we have a guest speaker. Jeff Wilkinson is going to be teaching us about the resurrection. So Jeff uh, will be our teacher next Sunday. And then also, we're moving into the holy season. Uh, Easter, Good Friday, all that stuff. A couple of things to let you know about. We're not going to be having a Good Friday service this year. It's sort of an interesting year. Um, Christmas is on a Sunday, and Easter happens during spring break. So there's going to be a lot of people out doing stuff. So we're not going to have a Good Friday service, but we are going to have the prayer vigil. And it's going to be modified somewhat. It's going to begin on Saturday morning rather than Friday night, and it'll go from Saturday morning through Sunday morning. And out in the entryway uh, are sign-ups for the prayer vigil. So Christy will be manning the table back there. Please go back and select a time where you can be in prayer. And you know what? If someone signs up for the time that you wanted to pray, then go ahead and pray during that time anyway. It's okay if we have more than one person praying at a time. Also, um, on Friday of this week, uh, the first of several senior recitals from the college are going to be here at the, the church. Um, young lady named Danny, Danny Austin, who some of you, anybody who's gone to see the Fireman's concerts, you will know she is an incredible singer. She's going to be doing her senior recital here at 7.30, I believe. Yes, yeah, 7.30 here at the church. And then also our very own Emily Thompson back there in the sound booth is going to be doing her senior recital in April, right? What date in April? Okay, April 22nd. So we're going to have a few of those. As most of you know, Quigley Hall is being refashioned into an amazing new facility, and so we're going to let those seniors perform here. So take advantage of that. So Friday here at 7.30. Okay. The resurrection. No, no, we're not talking about the resurrection. What has to happen before the resurrection? The crucifixion. The crucifixion, understanding the crucifixion, is not such an easy thing to do. This morning, I want to talk to you about the the crucifixion, and I want to help you to understand the crucifixion in three different ways. First, I want you to understand the crucifixion prophetically. To understand that the crucifixion was not just something that happened accidentally. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ really form the centerpiece of all of history. It says in Revelations chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ was the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. In other words, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was known to God in the mind of God, understood by God before Adam was ever formed, before God ever spoke and the heavens and the earth were created. In, Revel- or excuse me, in Genesis, the beginning of the book, going from the end of the book to the beginning, 
in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall of Adam, after the sin in the garden, God is issuing judgment upon the man, the woman, and the serpent. And he says to the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but that the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. This is known as the the proto-evangelism or the first reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that indeed Jesus would be bruised. He would suffer. But ultimately, he would prevail. He would triumph over the serpent, over Satan, over sin through the cross. So I want you to understand that the crucifixion has prophetic import. There is a context within which all of history centers down to that weekend that occurred between Friday and Sunday, the crucifixion and the resurrection. The Bible is a book full of prophecy. By some estimates, one out of every four verses in the Bible references a prophetic theme. And specifically in prophecy, the focus is upon the nation of Israel and subsequently Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 12, we read of a man named Abram who is called by God to move from the land that he is familiar with into the land of Canaan. And there God says he will make of Abram a mighty nation, a mighty people. And from that point forth, forth, uh, Genesis 12, moving forward, we see the development of the nation of Israel. And there are many, many prophetic pronouncements related to the welfare, the formation, the activity of the nation of Israel. But subsequent to Abram, God says there will be a king who will arise. And that king, of course, is King David. And from King David's line, there will issue forth a Messiah who will come and reign over the nation of Israel. The church really isn't addressed in Old Testament prophecy. Paul says that the church is a mystery, hidden from our view until Paul came to proclaim it. So prophecy relates to Israel, and from Israel, the coming of a Messiah. And very specifically, Jesus would be born, live 30 years, and then in a three-year period, we see recorded in the Gospels a history of his work, the miracles that he performed, the teachings that he gave to us. And all of those things began the process of focusing our attention on three days where he would be betrayed, beaten, crucified, and eventually rise again from the dead. So it was prophetic. It didn't just happen. It is the focus of history. Now, I I tend to be a little bit of a history buff. I love biblical history, but I love all kinds of history. One of my, my special focuses is on the founding of America. I love to read about the founding generation. I think history is fascinating. 
And a lot of things have happened over the course of mankind's presence on this planet. But everything that has occurred, all of it culminates and centers in Calvary. What happened on Calvary. There's a prophetic implication. And this should speak to your head. This should speak to the rational part of who you are. Because stop and think for a moment of the odds of any one man fulfilling all of the biblical prophecies that related to the Messiah. In the Old Testament, over 300 prophecies relating specifically to the Messiah's first coming. Many after that related to His second coming. Many of those prophecies specifically speaking about the suffering of and the death of the Messiah. The crucifixion. So the odds of any one person ever fulfilling that are astronomical. And so that should speak to your head. You should stop and ask yourself, how on earth did this come to be unless it was ordained and orchestrated by God? See, the, as I mentioned to you, the Messiah had to be from the seed of David, of David's lineage, and also from Abraham's seed. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 12. So, after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., within which all of the genealogical records were kept, the ability for anybody to fulfill those prophecies related to the genealogy of the Messiah had passed. So I want to speak to your head here for a moment and have you think about the prophetic implication of Calvary, of the crucifixion, of the fact that everything about that crucifixion was spoken of in the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, we read about the dehydration of the Messiah. My, my mouth is parched, the psalmist writes. And Jesus upon the cross, of course, said, I thirst. We read about him being struck in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, in Isaiah chapter 50 through 52. We read about in Numbers chapter 21 of the serpent who was put up on the bronze pole and all the people who were being killed by the serpents in the camp. All they had to do was to look to the serpent on the, cro or on the pole and they would be healed. And Jesus said, likewise, he would be lifted up on a cross. And if we look to him, we could be healed. The, the prophecy is just extraordinary. It talks about in, in Deuteronomy that the bones of the Passover lamb would not be able to be broken. And of course, Jesus on the cross, they went, the centurion went to break his legs and found that Jesus was dead already, so he did not have to break his legs to expedite his death. All of the blood sacrifices from Abel forward pictured the blood sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. Again, people, the, the odds of any man fulfilling this beyond Jesus Christ at this point in time 
is impossible. But certainly, only something orchestrated by God could have fulfilled it. And that's exactly what happened. So I want you to understand that the crucifixion has prophetic implication. It fulfills what God said would happen. What God always intended to occur. It wasn't an accident. Secondly, I want you to understand the crucifixion physically. What happened to Jesus as he went to the cross? Now, Jesus, as we know, was both God and man. When he was in Gethsemane and they came to him, we talked about this last week, and they, he asked them, who is it that you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he responded to them, I am. And the whole cohort fell to the ground demonstrating the magnificent power of Jesus Christ as God's own Son. But Jesus was also man. We saw there in the garden Him sweating drops of great blood because of the intensity of His struggle. So beginning there in the garden, I want you to walk with Jesus and go through with Him what He experienced physically and understand it. Because everything that Jesus did was for you and for me. So he's already under great stress and great pressure there in the garden, bleeding as he prays. Immediately after he is put in chains and led away, all of his disciples abandon him. As was prophesied would occur. In Psalm 22.11, Jesus is left alone. All of his closest associates betrayed or abandoned him. So the emotional impact of being left alone. As he is taken before Pilate, Pilate wants to get out of it. Pilate does not believe that he has a guilty man in front of him. He's trying to, to assuage the Jews and to convince them that he does not need to crucify this man. So he says, let's just scourge him. We'll put him through the scourging, and we'll see if he has anything to confess. Now, the scourging was done with a Roman cat of nine tails. It was uh, a pole that was connected to some leather, and at the end of the leather and all along it were bits of bone and metal. And they would give 40 lashes to the back of the accused who would be tied around a pole, unable to move. And his back would be given to them. And this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied would occur. It says in Isaiah chapter 50 that I gave my back to those who whipped me. Each lash would open up wounds upon the back of the accused. And after every lash, the opportunity for the accused to confess to the crime would be afforded them. But Jesus had nothing to confess. So, 40 lashes Jesus suffered. The blood loss during that time would have been extraordinary. So he's given 40 lashes. But beyond the 40 lashes, Jesus is mocked and ridiculed by the soldiers. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Now, the crown of thorns would have been from... from, uh, 
a vine that had thorns that were anywhere from one and a half to three inches in length. So the, the thorns would have definitely penetrated his head. And of course, we all know the skull is one of the most vascular regions of the body. And if, if you read carefully through uh, the gospel, I believe it's in, in Matthew's gospel, it says that after they put the crown of thorns upon his head, that they beat his head to make the thorns penetrate into his skull. So again, huge loss of blood. But also, again, very symbolic. The thorns represent the curse that was laid upon the ground there in Genesis chapter 3. So Jesus, by taking this crown of thorns upon his head, is also figuratively becoming the curse. Additionally, we read in the Gospels that Jesus was blindfolded and beaten. So they put a blindfold over Jesus' face to where he could not see what was happening and the soldiers would continually strike him. Now, any of you who have ever been in a fight or ever boxed know that when you see a, a blow coming, you gird yourself, you prepare yourself for it. Jesus did not have that opportunity. He did not see the blows coming as they would strike him in the head and in the body. So, Isaiah says, in Isaiah 52, 13 and 14, that his visage, his face, was marred more than any man. More than, more than it was able to recognize him. Jesus' face did not even appear to be as a man after the beating after the thorns had penetrated his head, after the cat of nine tails had struck him 40 times. All of this intense suffering was done to reflect God's hatred of and anger towards sin. Jesus had to suffer an extremely violent death to demonstrate God's hatred of sin. Now, this has all happened before the cross even begins to come into the picture. After he has been whipped, beaten, ridiculed, scorned, mocked, he is taken to a place where they would put the, the, the prisoner onto a, a board, a, a, really a beam that weighed somewhere in the vicinity of 80 to 100 pounds. And they would put a, a piece of acacia wood across their wrist and they would pound the nails into the acacia wood and then into the wrist and then into the beam. And from that point, they would rise up the prisoner and force them to walk the walk up what is now called the Via Dolorosa up to the hill of Calvary. For those of you who have been in Israel, you know this, but the Via Dolorosa is not a flat level place. It's an ascent. It's about a 650-yard walk with a 100-pound beam across your back 
after your back has been brutalized, after your face has been marred more than any man. And he's walking up this hill, carrying this cross, totally unable to move his, his arms. Probably he fell as he was walking up because we read about Simon the Cyrene being required to come along and to carry the cross. And I want you to think about this. As Jesus fell, he had no ability to break his fall because of the beam he was carrying. So he would have fallen face first, chest first, onto the ground with his beam on his back. Eventually he makes it to Calvary. Eventually, he is there. And they have seven-foot poles there, and they would put the, the prisoner onto the pole. Now, here's what is interesting. In 1968, they did an archaeological find where they found the corpse of a crucified man. And from the corpse, they were able to ascertain some aspects of the crucifixion. Now, sometimes the pictures we see of the crucifixion are inaccurate. This beam that Jesus would have been carried would have been slid it onto the pole that was up there. And there would have been a very slight um, board that would have allowed the prisoner to, to rest their buttocks there somewhat. The intent is not to provide comfort or relief, but to extend the agony of the crucifixion. They're crucified, bent down like this. We oftentimes see the, the nails going through the feet, that's not how it was done. In this crucified body, the nail was put through both of the heel bones. And so the, the, the prisoner would be bent down, the nail through, whoops, nail through the heel bone, so that they could not move to gain breath. Ultimately, most victims of crucifixion suffocated because they were unable to move. But because they were hanging from the boards, from the beam, their bones would literally come out of joint. Their shoulders would become dislocated. They could not strengthen themselves to move themselves to avoid that. So they would become dislocated, just as prophesied in Psalm 22. Further, to add to the shame... He was disrobed. We read about in the Psalms that they cast lots for his garments. So I, I don't want to um, whitewash this. Jesus was entirely naked before the crowds on the cross with the nails through his wrists and through his heels. Dislocated bones Blood loss of extraordinary measure. I'm, I'm saying this because I want you to understand what your Savior went through. You know, we, we, for those of you who saw The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, um, that probably did not really do it justice. And some people thought that that was an entirely excessive, gruesome portrayal. And, and really, the reality is that probably didn't do it justice. It says in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, that when John is 
observing the scene in the throne room, that into the, the scene comes a lamb. And it says, a lamb having been slain. So even in the throne room of God, Jesus presents with all the wounds of his crucifixion. Now the word there in, in Revelation 5-6 is an interesting word. It's not a typical word. It's the Greek word sphazo. And what sphazo means is to butcher, maim, and slaughter in a violent fashion. So when you see a carcass being cut up and butchered, that's not a violent fashion. That's a very orderly, precise way of being butchered. Sfazo describes someone who has literally been butchered in a violent fashion. That's what Jesus presents as in the throne room of God. So I want you to understand the crucifixion physically. It was brutal. It was extraordinary. It was unique. Because unlike all of the other prisoners who were being crucified, Jesus was the only one who was suffering for the sins of the world. On top of all of that, Jesus experienced while on the cross separation from the Father, spiritual death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That had never occurred in eternity where the Father and the Son had not been in union together. I imagine that was the most difficult aspect of his experience on the cross. But here's the triumphant part. Here's the triumphant part. At the end of his time on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. Because he had said in John chapter 10, verse 17, that no man takes my life from me. I lay my life down willingly. And I can take it up again. So it wasn't the Romans who killed him. It wasn't the Jews who killed him. It was the sin of mankind that killed him that when he took it upon himself, he was separated from God and he gave up his life for us willingly. So I want you to understand the physical dimension of what your Savior went through for you. It was extraordinary. That should touch your heart. The prophetic aspect of the crucifixion points us to the supernatural nature of what happened. The physical aspect of what happened on the cross should touch our hearts and help us to realize the depth of love that God has for you. That he would leave his home in heaven and go through all of that for you because he loved you that much. Which brings us to the third and the, the concluding point that I want you to understand the crucifixion from. And that's personal. I want you to understand this Easter season as we pass through Good Friday, as you're celebrating your uh, spring break. I want you to remember that Jesus Christ 
suffered crucifixion for you. I want you to appropriate that. I want you to take it to heart. I want you to understand the love that accompanied it. The purpose within it to transform your life. Paul said that he had purposed among the Corinthians to know nothing among them except for Christ and Christ crucified. He wanted them to understand the personal application of crucifixion. He who knew no sin, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, was made to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. And then to the Galatian, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is now Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live by the life